evening, good morning, wherever you are on the globe. This is the weekly podcast in memory of uh, Rebison Rachel Gettinger. We have the wonderful honor of the guest speaker, Diane Reese, and I want to introduce him to all those who don't know him. Yona Jonathan Reese uh, was born in 1966, and he attended Yeshiva University High School and then went to Shalavim in Israel before graduating summa cum laude from Yeshiva University in 1987 with a BA in philosophy. He received his ordination from the Reitz uh, Seminary in 91. Uh, he also earned the distinction of Yodin Yodin in 2002. He received his JD from Yale Law School in 1992 and was a senior editor of the Yale Law Journal. When he was at Yale, he was known as Jonathan slash Yona. So people didn't understand what the slash part was. And so they, he was known affectionately as Slash, not realizing that there was this dual name. From 92 to 98, he served as the associate at the international law firm of Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen and Hamilton in New York City. And like his uh, one of his predecessors, Rabbi Wine, felt that uh, a career in law was not satisfying. And so he then... Uh, was appointed Dean of Reb Yitzchok Elchonon uh, Reitz at that time. He served on the editorial board of Tradition magazine, and in 2013, he stepped down as the Dean of Yeshiva University and became the Rosh Yeshiva and was succeeded by Rabbi Nachum Penner. Following that, in 2013, he served as the Av based in of the Chicago Rabbinical Council. And um, since then, he has made his name negotiating the delicate spaces between right-wing, left-wing, orthodox, Haredi, and has been able to deftly negotiate those very, very chartered and dangerous currents and riptides that run throughout orthodoxy. And with no further ado, uh, I am turning over the podium to the illustrious welcomed speaker, Diane Reese. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Unger, for the beautiful introduction. I'm very impressed that you are familiar with the Slash story. I don't believe that it's recorded anywhere, so I'm really not sure how you know that, but it could be I shared it at some point. I really don't remember. <laughs> that is uh, very impressive. Okay, anyway, uh, I am very honored, very honored to, to uh, give this share this morning uh, in um, in honor of the memory, of course, of Rebison uh, Rachel Gerninger, um, who I had uh, the privilege of uh, of knowing, uh, when, especially during the period that she lived here on Chicago in the Parkside Estate. Also, I uh, am especially honored as well to uh, be able to say some Divrei Torah uh, from the Nesiv of Naftali Svi Yehudar Berlin, whose uh, commentary to the Torah Macdover is uh, such a classic in terms of Torah literature. And I wanted to go through a few of his pieces on Parashas Shemosin in particular. Uh, my own uh, perception when I go through the Nesiv 
and his commentary is that I'm able to discern at least the four different areas in which uh, there is a particular inspiration in the Nitzvah's commentary. I'm sure that there are many others, uh, but for me, what he provides is, number one, a big-picture conceptualization um, regarding how to look at the Torah as the totality. Uh, number two, he provides running themes that you may not have picked up when you look at the certain uh, words, certain phrases throughout the Torah. And then uh, once uh, you have uh, the understanding of uh, the meaning of those phrases, he's able to apply uh, his uh, special uh, definitions in many different places so you can see running themes. Number three, uh, the Nesiv was a master Pashtan, uh, where if you look at the Pshuto Shomikra, we know Eina Mikra Yotzei Pshuto, uh, the Nitziv sometimes is able to provide really novel interpretations of just what the words mean in Kanot. And number four, uh, the Nitziv was a great Darshan, uh, in especially in terms of relating uh, the Psukim uh, to uh, notions in the Chazal, moral lessons, uh, homiletic lessons, uh, the Nitziv uh, always uh, finds uh, nuggets uh, in terms of uh, what uh, moral lessons and values uh, we can glean from the Psukim. So I'd like to start with a big picture conceptualization. The Nitziv in his introduction to Sefer Shmos notes uh, that uh, Sefer Shmos is not called Sefer Shmos by everybody. We, we find that Sefer Shmos used as a term in the Medrash in Bereshis Rabbah, uh, and in ha- what he calls Harbe Mekomos. Uh, we also find in the Ramban, the Ramban in his introduction to Sefer Shmos refers to it essentially as Sefer Hagula. This is the book of redemption. It begins with the Golos Mitzrayim and it ends with the redemption from the receiving of the Torah and the building of the Mishkan. But he notes that the Bahag, the Sefer HaBahag, has names for each of the five Svarim. Bereshis is called Sefer Bereshis. Vayikra is Sefer Kohanim, deals with laws of uh, the Kohanim and uh, the sacrificial service. But Midbar Skumash HaPikudim, the Book of Numbers, as we're very uh, well familiar. And the uh, Devarim, as we're also familiar, is called Mishnah Torah, like a review of the Torah, a second presentation uh, of the Torah, as Moshe Rabbeinu reviewed the Torah at um, Arabos Moab uh, prior to uh, prior to his passing. But Shemos is not given any special name by the Bahag. It's called Chumasheni. It's called Chumasheni, the second Chumash. There are Chamisha Chumashay Torah, five different um, portions of the uh, of the Torah, well, divided into one fits. And this is called the second fit, Chumasheni. Very unglamorous uh, term. And the Mitzib asked the question, he says, I understand if the Baha'i wanted to call each one Rishon Sheni, Chumashlishi, Ravi Chamishi, they're so called Shmos Chumashani. Um, but once you're calling all of the other books by a particular name, a particular theme, uh, so why should we not adorn? Uh, the Sefer of Shmos in the same way and just call it Chumasheni. And he says, he thinks what the Bahag is transmitting is an important message that that Shmos is really a completion of a Sefer Bereshis. Sefer Bereshis, which deals with the events that surrounded the creation and the unfolding of the world is not really complete until we have a Sefer Shmos that speaks about the destiny of a Klai Yisrael and their development 
as a nation, because as Chazal say, the very word Bereshis, the beginning of the Torah, means that the world was created Bishvil Yisrael Shenikru Reishis. It was created for the sake of the Jewish people who are called Reishis. And the Jewish people, says the Nitziv, did not come to its tachlit, did not come to its ultimate realization and fulfillment until Yitzias Mitzrayim, until the exodus of Egypt, which is described in the Sefer uh, Shemos, when we would be re'uyim lios or goyim, when we would be worthy at that point in time to be the light unto nations of the entire world, which of course is also a running theme of the Nitziv, how the Jewish people really are the exemplars of morality and values in the world. And we shouldn't look to the world around us, a very important lesson for these days, uh, to be the arbiters of what is morality. That's our job, to show the world exactly how a proper value system is supposed to be uh, conducted. So this combination, going back to the Nitziv's introduction of the fulfillment and destiny of of Am Yisrael, is really um, crystallized in Sefer Shmos, both with Yitzhak Mitzrayim and with Matan Torah, because the, uh, he notes the Chazal have a very important comment with respect to the creation of the world, that when the world was created, the sixth day man was created, it says, Yom Hashishi, um, the, the, uh, with a hey, Hayidia, a special sixth day, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made a condition that the, the creation uh, and the survival of heaven and earth, of the world that he created, would be dependent upon that special sixth day, the sixth day of Sivan, when it would be determined whether or not the Jewish people would accept the Torah. In Mechavim Yisrael, it's the Torah Motov. If we would accept the Torah, wonderful, all will be fine and good. And if not, to the creation that he had made, he said, the Jewish people doesn't accept the Torah. There's no point to uh, this world. I am going to send the world back to a state of tovavo, of nothingness and confusion and chaos, um, because the whole purpose of creation is uh, for the Jewish people to exist and uh, to accept uh, the uh, Torah. And therefore, uh, since that only happens, in Sefer Shemos, where we become a fully fulfilled people in our exodus from Egypt and our acceptance of the Torah. Therefore, this is Chumasheni. It's really the second half, the complement, the supplement to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Now, we can add that uh, this observation of the Nesib actually dovetails very nicely with the famous Rashi, at the beginning of the Torah, the beginning of Sefer Bereshis, where Rashi quotes Amr Rabbi Yitzchak, Lo hayitzach lahaskel asatayra, ela mehachodesh hazeh lachem, shehu mitzvah vishonesh shenichtavu ba Yisrael. That really the Torah could have begun with Sefer Shmos. It could have begun with the mitzvahs of Sefer Shmos that were given to the Jewish people. So you'll ask, how could such a thing be? How could the Torah begin that way? You don't have the origins of the world. So the answer is, no, no, no. 
this is a part and parcel, and in fact, the ultimate culmination of my Sibirashis, so when in fact the Jewish people came into being, when we had Yetzias Mitzrayim, and we were ready to start receiving mitzvahs. And therefore, Rashi has to give another explanation as to why it is that we need uh, a recitation of all of the events that, that preceded that um, in terms of the nitty-gritty of my Sibirashis and the story of uh, the stories of the Avos of Avim Yitzchak and Yaakov, etc. But in reality, um, the, um, the, the mitzvahs that are in Sefer Shmos and uh, the, uh, the destiny of Klai Yisrael that is described in Sefer Shmos is really very much the heart very much the heart and the climax of Maise Beratius. It really is a kind of a continuation of a Sefer Beratius. I am reminded of an explanation that one of my Cheverim gave. I liked it very much. A Chaver of mine, his name is Rabbi Yosef of Tannenbaum. He's also a Jewish singer. He's put out a few tape cassettes. Uh, so I once we once had him over for Shabbos. It was right before Rosh Hashanah. And he asked the question, why is it that we are not Mivarech Sachodish? We just had Shabbos Mivarchim for Chodesh Shvat. Why is it we don't have Birchah Sachodish for Chodesh Tishrei? So there are different, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very powerful question. We do Birchah Sachodish for all the other months of the year. Why not for Chodesh Tishrei? It's such a monumental month. Uh, so some answers are well, it says Tiku Bechodesh Shofar, Bakesed Liyom Chagenu, that it's, it's a hidden month. It's a hidden month, so therefore we don't want to be mevarach esakodesh. We're going to get judged at this time, and we have the satan as the prosecutor, so we want to be ma'ave v'sasatan. The satan shouldn't know the Rosh Hashanah is about to happen. So for that reason, we're not going to be mevarach esakodesh. Different answers are suggested. He gave what I think was a beautiful answer, which is that Tishrei is really a continuation of Elul. We will mevarech as a chodesh for Elul. The whole point of Elul is that it begins. You may arachamim v'haslichos all of the days in which we are beseeching a kodesh baruch for mercy for atonement. It's at the period in which we're preparing ourselves for the yemei adin. Uh, that it's the beginning of the process of the tshuva season. So once we did the berchas chodesh for Elul, so it really covers. The two-month period of Elul and Tishrei, Tishrei is really a continuation on some level of Chodesh Elul. So I, I love that answer, and I think that's very much uh, similar to uh, this explanation that the Nitziv is giving us ha- in terms of how we're supposed to approach the Sefer of Shmos, that it really is the ultimate climax and culmination and fulfillment of a Sefer Beratius, the purpose of creation. And the truth is that we can apply this explanation to the Ramban as well, because the Ramban tells us that the culmination of the Geula, um, which is a centerpiece of a Sefer Shmos, is the building of the Mishkan at the very conclusion of Sefer Shmos. A lot of parshios are devoted, Truma, Tetzave, Vayakil, Pekudim, Kisisa, on some level, are all devoted to the description of the building of the Mishkan. And he says that the building of the Mishkan was what enabled us to return Shavuam Ala Savosam to the high level, uh, the, the high levels uh, that were established by Avam Yitzchak and Yaakov in terms of uh, their vision 
of what the Jewish people is supposed to be, that we finally were able to be restored to that level. Uh, and uh, we were we had the Hashra Shechina, we had the dwelling of the Shechina in the Mishkan, and at that point in time, we were considered to be redeemed. The building of the Mishkan, really, if you think about it, is very much considered to be um, the ultimate construction um, that is at the heart of the creation of the world. The world was created so there can be a Hashra Shechina in a Mishkan in the Beis HaMikdash upon the Jewish people. This would explain very much why it is that when we do not perform Malacha on Shabbos, when we have our observance of Shabbos and we try to figure out what is it that we're not supposed to do, the Torah just says don't do Malacha on Shabbos. So Chazal understood that the categories of work that we're not allowed to perform on Shabbos mirror that which went into the construction of the Mishkan. Those different Malachos, those different categories of labor that were necessary in order to construct the boards and to weave the curtains and to do all of the other preparations for the building of the Mishkan. And what's the reason for that? Because the building of the Mishkan really goes back to the creation of the world and the establishment of the day of rest, the seventh day of the creation, which is a Shabbos because the Mishkan really is the final realization of the creation of the world that we see here in Sefer Shemos. So when we say Kiddush on Friday night, we say that Shabbos and the sanctification of Shabbos is both a zikaron lemaseh voracious, that a Kodesh Baruch who created the world in six days and resting on Shabbos, but it's also zeicha letzias mitzrayim. We say both. You pay attention to the Kiddush. We say zikaron lemaseh voracious, and we also say zeicha letzias mitzrayim. Which one is it? So the answer is, it's really both. That Zeich L'Tzias Mitzrayim, Yitzias Mitzrayim is what led to the building of the Mishkan. The building of the Mishkan was the ultimate realization of Maise Bereshis, of the creation of the world that, that continued into Sefer Shmos, what we had, the, the ultimate realization of why HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, so that uh, we would have a special people that is devoted to Hashem, we would receive the Torah, and then there would be a Hashra Shechina in the Mishkan. And that's why the categories of work that correspond to what HaKadosh Baruch Hu rested from, so to speak, on the seventh day of creation, correspond to the work that went into the building of the Mishkan. So this is the big picture conceptualization um, of the Nesiv that we see in his introduction to the um, to the parasha. A couple of points, just as in the Nesiv, as a Darshan, as extracting beautiful moral messages from the psukim that I wanted to note. Um, so one is with respect to the Moshe Rabbeinu striking down the Mitzri. When he sees that there's this Mitzri in Perak base, Pasuk Yud base in Parsha Shmos, Mitzri who is um, attacking one of the Jewish men, one of the slaves, um, at the Mitzri had previously raped his wife, Chazal tell us, and Moshe strikes down this mystery, and it says that Vayifan Kovachol, that he looks this way and he looked that way. So, what is Vayifan Kovachol? 
uh, and he sees that there's nobody there. He kills the Mitzri and hides him in the sand. So it conceals him in the sand. So the question is, what's this? So the simple Pashup Shad, if I was reading it, I would say that he saw there's nobody around to get him into trouble. In the end, that the the tail bearers have gotten him into, into trouble anyway. No, but you know, that's what led him to it's uh, to, to be feel comfortable um, killing the Mitzri. But Rashi, of course, brings uh, the Mama Chazal that uh, he saw that uh, he saw he saw what this Mitzri uh, did uh, to uh, this poor Jew. Basada out in the field, and when he did Babayas in terms of raping his wife, and he saw that there was not going to be any descendant who would ever convert to Judaism or ever really be any good whatsoever, and therefore that was the justification for killing the mystery. Says the Nitzib, something absolutely fascinating, says that Moshe Rabbeinu, he wasn't looking to take the law into his own hands. If you have a law-abiding society, and there is an individual, you have an attacker who's raping a man's wife, who's striking the individual to kill the individuals, trying to kill an innocent person. If you had a good justice system in place, so then the police would come along and they would administer justice. You could be able to register a complaint. Your Moshe Rabbeinu could have said, I saw a murder committed. He's going to, I, I, or I saw an assault. I saw an assault committed, he could register a complaint, and then this person would be properly punished. But what Moshe Rabbeinu saw was that there was no justice system in place. Since there was no justice system in place, and he saw that everybody, they were all Sone Yisrael, they were all haters of the Jews, and there was nobody who was going to fight for the justice of a Jewish victim. Therefore, that's why it says, Vayar, he ain't ish, meaning it was hearkening to the Mishnah in It says, If there is nobody there to stand up and do the right thing, then you have to stand up and do the right thing. This was in quality of Moshe Rabbeinu, and the Nitzib reads us into the Pasuki Darshins, this Maimar Chazal, that we see a precedent for this notion that if there's nobody, there's nobody to stand up, so then you have to stand up for justice. You live in a world in which nobody is crying out about truth and there's sheker and lies and anti-Semitism all around you, so then you have no, cha- no choice. You have to stand up and you have to, and you have to, speak, you have to speak the truth. Um, the Nitziv also has... Sometimes a, a drasha which harkens to uh, Kabbalistic sources. And this we find that when Moshe Rabbeinu approaches the burning bush in a Perak Gimel, and uh, the, you know, he comes close to the bush, and a Kaddish Baruch who calls out to Moshe, he says, Mioma Moshe, 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 for Yom Hineni, he says, Here I am. Kaddish Baruch who says, You're in a holy place. Take your shoes off of your feet. Where you're standing is holy ground. Holy ground. So this idea, take the shoe off of your foot. So it says that the Nitziv, he says that this is an idea of his Spashtu Sagashmius. Spashtu Sagashmius, 
means that Kaddish Baruch Hu is saying, you have to now become spiritually connected. You're in a holy place. So therefore, you have to remove the physical clothing and what is the uh, the the what is the, the ultimate embodiment of the physical clothing? The physical separation between man and God is the shoe. This is represented by the shoe. Why is it represented by the shoe? It's really a kabbalistic concept. If you think about it, you find this in the shalom. The Shalom talks about why in a fast day we remove leather shoes from our feet. He says because the shoe is the representation of man's mastery over the world. The Kodesh Baruch Hu created Domeim Sameach, Chai and Medaber, four different orders of creation, that which is silent, which is like the concrete on the ground, that which is Sameach, like the grass on the ground, and that which is Chai, which is an animal, and then the ultimate fulfillment of creation on the highest part of the totem pole, so to speak, is Medaber, is the human being. So the human being shows his superiority when he wears a shoe of leather, because then he's trampling down with the shoe which is made of leather, so he's trampling on the hide of the animal that it was made from. He's trampling on the ground, the concrete, which is domain, and the grass, which grows on the ground, which is a hide, um, which, which is tzomeach, so therefore, this is a mastery over the domain, the tzomeach, and the chai, all through the trampling of the shoe. That's why it has to be taken off on a fast day when we're humbling ourselves. So it's the same idea, and this is pretty much explicit. The Nisib doesn't refer to the Zohar in this parsha, but the Zohar also has exactly the same idea that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to take off the shoe, so the idea was that, that because you're demonstrating that you are not being blocked by physical materialistic considerations, in this way you're able to connect much more closely to a Kaddish Baruch Hu through the removal of the shoe. And then it Sid points out that he has the same sort of idea. This is where we find running themes in the Nitzib. He has uh, the same commentary with respect to, to uh, the Chalitza ceremony, when uh, a man who has died and he didn't leave any children, but he left the brother, and the, the widow is supposed to either marry the brother, or if he refuses uh, to marry her and to step into his brother's shoes, so to speak, so she removes uh, the shoe of the brother, and then she's released to be allowed to marry somebody else. Um, so it says that in Siv over there, that this is also an idea of Hispashtus Hagashmius, that, that he is, that this is releasing sort of that physical block, that physical connection, and it is freeing up the spirituality, the spirituality of the moment. Um, that in this case, the reason the, the widow removes the shoe is because the man, the brother-in-law, didn't want to be connected to that spirituality because he didn't want to perform yibum. So she shows that she's pre- prepared to have that spiritual connection, which is supposed to occur through uh, this uh, connect, through this linkage that she has with the brother-in-law. And by removing the shoe, she shows her fulfillment of that uh, spiritual connection to a Kaddish Baruch Hu that's supposed to be elevating the soul of her departed husband. So it's the same idea, says the Nesib, with respect to, to uh, this removal of the shoe um, uh, that would enable 
um, that would enable Moshe Rabbeinu to become a Merkava the Shechina, to become a chariot for holiness, but he had to remove that physical impediment, that physical obstruction um, with respect to, to uh, with respect to the shoe. Uh, now, I want to talk about the Nitziv uh, the also um, in terms of one other important running theme that the uh, Nitziv speaks about, which is his approach to anti-Semitism, which is a very interesting approach in general. And uh, we know that nobody can quite explain or understand anti-Semitism. But if you look at the Pasuk, Osam, in the very beginning, really, of the Parsha, Perak Aleph, Pasuk Zion, that the Melech Mitzrayim um, and the Mitzrim, the Egyptian people, were very concerned about the rapid spreading of the Jewish people in their country, but so some, and then they said, we have to figure out how to persecute, oppress, um, and subdue, uh, ultimately even annihilate the Jewish nation. There was tremendous anti-Semitism that developed. And uh, the Nitziv relates all of this to the Medrash Rabbah, Medrash Rabbah on the parsha speaks about how the Jews were getting a little bit too comfortable in Mitzrayim. They decided, you know what? We don't want to make any waves with the Egyptian people. So they stopped Paskulamu. They stopped performing Brismila. They stopped performing Brismila. Maybe that means not necessarily they didn't do Brismila, but they would do it and then they would hide it. They would cover up the orla um, with the surrounding skin so it should look like they are not circumcised. And it says in the Medrash Rabbah that when they did that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's response was, I was up until now, there's been a certain ava, there's been a certain love that the Egyptian nation had for the Jews, and now I'm going to turn it into sinner. Now I'm going to turn it into hatred. So what is this all about? So the Nitziv says, and this is consistent with what he says elsewhere, and this is based really on a Gemara in Sanhedrin and Daf Kukdalit. He does not quote the Gemara here, but he quotes it elsewhere. And the Gemara there speaks about what is it that caused the Jewish people to be all alone and desolate at the time of the destruction of the first base of Mikdash, which says, Echa Yashva Vadada Yira Basiyam. So Akadish Baruch Hu said, This is a statement of Rabbi Yochan in the Gemara. Aniyamarti, I said by Ishkong Yisrael, Betach Badad, Enyaakov. I said the Jewish people will be all alone and secure. Eretz Dagan, Mesirosh, Akshamab, Yafutal, that they're going to live with great prosperity all by themselves. But now that they have violated uh, the covenant, so therefore that Akshab Yeh, Badan Moshavam. So now they're going to be desolate. They're going to be alone. They'll be alone. They'll be Badan. But not by Yishkon Yisrael, Betach Badan. Not in a confident and secure and successful way, but rather in a fashion of desolation and destruction. So says of the Nitziv, this really was the problem in Mitzrayim. But Simalear, it's so some Yosef had this vision that his, his brothers should remain in the Goshen. They should remain in a certain separate area. They'll have yeshivas there. They'll have the Kolalim. They'll have their Jewish community over there. But instead, instead, they spread out to be amongst the Egyptians in all of the different Egyptian cities. That's why during Makas Bechoros, 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he had to pass over the Jewish homes that were located and nestled in between the Egyptian homes. What were they doing in between the Egyptian homes? They weren't supposed to be there in the first place. Says in its sieve that this was the problem, this is often the source of anti-Semitism, is a lack of awareness of uh, the importance and uh, the value of the Jews keeping to themselves. When we keep to ourselves, so then there's a greater level of respect. Now, you can have different points of view as to whether you feel this really works, whether this really is, or ultimately the source of anti-Semitism, Jews in ghettos also weren't treated so nicely. There are different ways that one can retort to, uh, and uh, respond to this, but I think what the Nisib is ultimately saying is that the Jews have to be secure within our own value systems. The example he gave was this idea of assimilation a little bit. Oh, we're not going to perform bris milah so obviously. We're not going to be so obviously different. We'll take off our yarmulke. We won't have our tzitzis on. Um, we're not going to be so careful about the food that we eat when we're in the company of the non-Jews, etc., etc., I think that's what he's getting at. There has to be a certain pride for us to maintain our value system, for us to maintain our morals, for us to maintain our religious observances, for us to maintain our our identity. The Medrash, after all, does say that this was really the the antidote uh, in the end as to why we merited Gula altogether because of those ways that we were Mitsuyonim Sham those ways in which we did maintain our distinctiveness, Loshinu es Shemam, Loshinu es Lashonam, certain things we didn't change. We didn't change our names, we didn't change our Lashon, the way we spoke, certain versions of the Medrash says, Loshinu es Mabusham, um, we kept a certain values. Most of the Jews didn't speak Lashon Hara. Uh, the Jews, for the most part, stayed away from uh, sexual immorality. Uh, says the Medrash, this is what uh, kept us going. It's uh, those aspects of distinctiveness uh, with respect to uh, the Jewish people. I'll just uh, conclude with the, the Nesiv as Pashtan, very interesting way in which the Nesiv says, you look closely at what a Pasuk says, and uh, you can glean new insights with respect to what's really going on. It says, this is in Perik Basic, the Jewish people groaned from their work, they cried, um, that they, and then at their cries, um, they were lifted to Akadish Bahu, Minha Avoda. Um, so it says uh, the uh, Nesiv that it doesn't say Batal Shabbasam Mina Avodah Elohim. It doesn't say that uh, their cries went up uh, from their work because they were in the process of working. Because earlier in the Pasuk it says, Mitzrayim. The king of Mitzrayim died. So he said, Oh, it was a big major funeral that day. So big funeral, everybody has to pay the respect. So there was no work that day. That's why it doesn't say Vatal Shavasam Mina Avodah. It says Vatal Shavasim El Helokim Mina Avodah. They had the day off, but since they had the day off, so therefore they were able to gather and they were able to cry. But it also wasn't that they were crying and, and spelling out a prayer to Hashem. Oh, we're suffering so much from our slavery, from our subjugation, from the servitude, from all the clay and the bricks that we have to build. Because then it would have said, 
that, that they were complaining to a Kaddish Baruch regarding the Avodah. But it says, It means that they were, it was as a result of the Avodah, of the work that they cried out. So it says the Nitzim, they didn't have the sophistication at that point in time to know how to articulate their prayer properly. So therefore, it was essentially like a wordless prayer. It was, as he says, it was a called saka. Oy vavoy, oy Hashem said, oy we don't even know what to say. We're just saying, oy vavoy. And this was the prayer that that instead that, that that was heard by a Kodesh Baruch Hu and that moved, so to speak, to respond to them and to bring them a salvation. Just a simple wordless prayer because of all the avoda, because of all of the oppression and subjugation that they had suffered. It's interesting because my own Rebbe, Rav Herschel Schechter, Shlita, also um, picks up on this idea as well. Says that we're learning Baba Kama now. Maveh is one of the Nizikin, says one of the torts is Maveh. What does Maveh mean? So some say it means eating, an animal eats from someone else's property. But one of the other explanations, major explanation in the Gemara is Maveh Se'adam. It's talking of that's the way, damage which is brought about by a human being that harms somebody else. So how do we say Maveh? What does Maveh have to be with? Maveh means crying out. That's uh, the basic ba'usi. Uh, uh, that is uh, the basic, uh, fundamental, uh, ultimate um, uh, source of uh, what it means uh, to be a human being created by a Kodesh Baruch Hu, that quality of being a maveh, of being somebody who cries out. That's why maveh zeha adam. So just the crying out, that's a simple crying out that we have when we're suffering, and if we don't know necessarily what to say, so that's what a Kodesh Baruch Hu hears. He hears a crying out. It doesn't have to be always so articulate. It doesn't have to be always so well formulated. Just a simple crying out. That's what a Kodesh Baruch Hu heard from a Klau Yisrael. There's an, another running theme. He has many places in the parsha. What a lokei avaham It means when it's referred to many times in the parsha. Suffice to say. Then Nisiv has a, a, a long dissertation um, that uh, is uh, that appears in many many different places about uh, the nature how in each of the others Hakadosh Baruch Hu intervened both in a way that was the Malamina Teva above the, the normal way of uh, interacting in the world and also with special Ashkocha Pratis whenever we start with our prayers of Shmon Esrei. And we say, It's a reminder of all the times Moshe Rabbeinu said to uh, the, the people, the, uh, you're going to get the same special treatment. Every single Jew receives that special treatment of special miracles and special intervention, just like Avam Yitzchak and Yaakov. Those are some of the thoughts from the Nitziv that I wanted to share with you in terms of his uh, overall conceptualization, um, his big picture um, of a view of Sefer Shmos, some of the running themes and some of the special drashos and the unique ability that uh, the Nitziv had to be a special pashtan to see what uh, the words are teaching us. When you look very closely at the words, we should continue to be inspired uh, by his uh, example and uh, we should um, continue to uh, uh, learn um, the Torah uh, together.
And um, in that Zuchus, uh, I know the memory of Rabbi Singeringer, Zichon Levacha, and and Bizoka to to Agula from our uh, current uh, situation um, in in Eretz Yisrael. Thank you so much, Diane Reese. I'm reminded that Rabbi Soloveitchik also distinguished between Tsa'akasam and Na'akasam in the Haggadah, and and he also said that there comes to a point where a person not is that he's um, not on the level to articulate davening, but there comes a point in an existential crisis where words are not sufficient, and all he can do is shriek out. It was a slightly different than your than your Rosh Hashiva, but Rav Soloveitchik was able to say that even a person who can articulate davening and he can daven, hot davened, there comes a point in his crisis where words fail him. That's the na'akatam, the shriek, and that's what goes up to the Abishta. Beautiful, beautiful. Rahman Ali Babai. I love that. Yeah. Anyway, everyone, don't worry. Batya will be back next week. My wife will be back next week. We'll all be together next week. Have a wonderful week, everybody.